thank you, privilege. Well, let's keep our Bibles open and uh, let's ask for God's help. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, providing all that we need for life and godliness. Father, we thank you that you know our pasts and understand them completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them (coughs) adequately, and that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. So will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, that each one of us might be conscious that we're listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus, calling us now to follow him into the future. For it is in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking you for a moment to cast your mind back to 9-11. I'm sure that nearly all of us, hopefully all of us, can remember that absolutely shocking day when terrorists launched those devastating attacks on New York and Washington. Now, when the the news began to break uh, over the television screens, everybody in the White House was told to make their way to an underground bunker for protection. But uh, the problem was that the available supply of water and air was rather limited. And there was a really rather awkward moment when some people had to be removed from the bunker because it was overcrowded. Now, if you think about that, there's an irony there, isn't there? A bunker is a place of safety and protection. And uh, yet there was a very real danger of people suffocating in the place that was designed to keep them alive. Now, I think that that rather strange event uh, gives us quite a helpful way into thinking about the teaching of the Lord Jesus in our passage this morning. Because many Christians read the Sermon on the Mount and they think that what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a brand new set of rules and regulations. Uh, As if the Sermon on the Mount is a way of justifying ourselves by our good behaviour in order to get into the Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, My dear friends, that is profoundly wrong. In fact, when Christians do that, and plenty of Christians do, they are in danger of suffocating spiritually. Now, of course, for some uh, people, living by the rules sounds very attractive. Uh, That was how the religious people were thinking in Jesus' day, especially, of course, the Pharisees. Uh, They said that's why God gave us the law in the first place. Uh, It was kind of a ladder that we could climb up in order to get right with God. And the Pharisees were extremely good at it. Uh, They devoted their lives to it. And uh, for some religious people, that has always sounded attractive. Because, if you think about it, if you live by the rules, well, you know where you are. The idea, I think, is that you do your bit and then God owes you. And so, all around the world this morning, in all the different religions of the world, you will find people who are trying to climb their way up the rock face of self-denial 
and rule-keeping in order to make themselves acceptable to God and in order to get to heaven, whatever they conceive of heaven to be. Now the great problem is that verse 20 of chapter 5 ruins it all. Because in verse 20 Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now can you see that that sets the standard impossibly high? How can my righteousness be greater than that of the professional law keepers? Uh, Well, in this part of the sermon, that is from verse 21 through to verse 47, what Jesus does is he gives us six very practical examples of how this is going to be worked out in the lives of his disciples. This morning we're looking at examples number two and three, and you can see from the headings in the NIV that uh, this is dealing with adultery and divorce. Now, Matthew uh, loves to arrange his writing by repeating verses almost word for word at the beginning and at the end of a section so that we know where we are and we know what it is he's trying to teach us. So, just to give you one example, if you look back for a moment to chapter 4 and verse 23, uh, we read in chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now that verse is repeated almost word for word in chapter 9 and verse 35. And it's as though Matthew is saying to us, this is what we're going to look at, at Matthew chapters 5 to 7, here's the teaching, And then chapters 8 and 9, here are the healings. And why does Matthew do that? Chapter 9, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So you see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us as the shepherd king who cares for his flock. He's saying, this is how life is going to be in my kingdom. The kingdom is breaking into human history because I have now come as the king. But it is not about obedience to a set of rules because that actually is going to suffocate you. That won't work. No, the Sermon on the Mount is about being changed by God into the likeness of Jesus, or maybe to put it slightly differently, to be in God's kingdom is to be changed into the likeness of the King. So let's look at the two examples in our passage this morning in verses 27 to 32. And what we're going to do is we're going to start by trying to understand the teaching Jesus gives and then afterwards we'll consider some of the practical applications that we can take away with us this morning in order to live more like our Lord Jesus. And the first example is desire. 
Now I want you to notice the pattern that Jesus uses here to get his message across. Can you see that he begins each paragraph, have a look at it, by saying, you have heard that it was said, or it has been said, and then Jesus says, but I say to you. Now that, you see, is a massive claim of personal authority by Jesus. Jesus is attaching the same authority to his own teaching as to the words of God in the Old Testament. Now obviously, you and I are not going to pay a great deal of attention to what Jesus says here unless you believe that Jesus is really who he claims to be, that he really is the Son of God. Now that, of course, is why the Pharisees had such a vested interest in proving that Jesus could not possibly be the Son of God because his demands are so much greater, so much deeper than their superficial keeping of the rules. You see, the Pharisees could pride themselves that they hadn't committed adultery. Uh, That's how Jesus begins, doesn't he, in this first example in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And that, of course, is what God said in the Ten Commandments. And what that means, of course, is that adultery is always wrong. There's no debate about that. And uh, it's a very good thing not to commit adultery. That is always true everywhere for everybody in God's world. Now, uh, the teaching on this begins right at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2 where God the Creator authorises marriage as between a man and a woman, so it's heterosexual, as exclusive, uh, it's between a man and his wife and no one else, and as lifelong. Uh, The man cleaves to his wife, they shall become one flesh, one person, till death us do part. Now that teaching back in Genesis chapter 2 provides a framework of faithfulness to our commitment which then enables the deepest sort of human intimacy to follow. Uh, It's an intimacy of two people coming together at every level of their being in love and in covenant commitment and faithfulness. That is God's pattern for marriage and adultery always destroys it because it violates promises, it betrays trust, it wounds the offended partner and it crushes human dignity. And that is why adultery is always wrong. Now, of course, it's not unforgivable. Uh, But we do need to recognise that adultery is highly toxic and destructive always. And of course, if you think about it, because God uses the picture of a husband and a wife joined together in love and faithfulness to teach us about the relationship between Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 5, well then I'm sure you can see that adultery is the complete opposite of that. 
It's actually a contradiction of the character of the Lord Jesus. Now, the interesting thing is that the Pharisees would say, yep, I agree with all of that. Uh, We have not committed adultery. And it may be, by God's grace, that uh, most of us this morning could say the same thing. But Jesus, you see, won't simply let you tick that box and move on. Look at verse 28. But I tell you, says Jesus, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And of course the same could be said about a woman looking lustfully at a man. So this is what can so easily lead to adultery. But I want us to be clear this morning that the the temptation itself is not what is sinful. I mean, how could it be? Uh, We're always being tempted every day, aren't we, in lots of different areas of life. But you see, it's what we do with the temptation that really matters. Uh, So there's actually a famous old Chinese proverb that says, you cannot stop birds flying over your head, but you can stop them building nests in your hair. And uh, in the same way, you see, it's not the temptation that's the problem. It's what we do with it. Now, of course, in our culture, there's plenty of sexual stimulation all around us. And, of course, the temptation is therefore unavoidable. But, you see, what Jesus is talking about in verse 28 is indulging the thought He's talking about allowing our imaginations to fixate on the idea. That is the sin. And I want you to please notice uh, that the key is the last three words in verse 28. In his heart. Because, friends, that's where the battle is. It's in the heart. That's what Jesus is concerned about. Because what goes on in the heart reveals the truth about the character. Now think about this. How can you expect to be a member of the kingdom of heaven if the secret life of the heart is so very different from the character of God? So different from his standards, so different from the teaching of Jesus. Well, Jesus says the only alternative, actually, to being a member of the kingdom of heaven, verses 29 and 30, is what Jesus describes as hell. Now that, you see, friends, is why these verses are so serious and so important. You see, that terrifying prospect, says Jesus, means that you would actually be better off being handless or eyeless, rather than finding yourself in hell. So these things really are important. They are not trivial. They matter that much, says Jesus, because they determine our eternal destiny. So that's the first example uh, of what it means to be a kingdom person. And before we look at the applications, let's move on and look at the second example that Jesus gives in verses 31 and 32, which is divorce. 
Now, friends, in order for us to understand uh, what Jesus is saying here, you first need to understand uh, the situation of the people who were listening to Jesus 2,000 years ago. Because (coughs) they read Deuteronomy 24. You don't need to look at it now. But in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses laid down the conditions on which a husband could divorce his wife. And of course, because Moses was speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can say that in the Old Testament, God did make provision for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, It had to be a written statement, a certificate, so that the divorce was public. The reason seems to be so that everybody would know that the divorced woman was no longer married and was therefore eligible to remarry. But uh, what were the legitimate grounds for divorce? That was the big question. And here in our passage in verse 32, Jesus says it's for one reason only. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. Now, friends, that was absolutely radical teaching 2,000 years ago because, you see, the rabbis had compiled a long and really rather flexible list of circumstances in which divorce would be possible. So, for example, the rabbis taught that uh, if your wife began to lose her looks uh, or if she uh, occasionally burnt the supper, Uh, those were actually adequate grounds for divorce. Now, against that background, you see, it's entirely understandable, isn't it, that the disciples were thinking to themselves, well, hang on a minute. What is the real position? What is God's attitude to divorce? Well, Jesus was asked about this, actually, a little bit later in his ministry. And I think it will help us to understand Matthew 5 rather better by looking at what Jesus said a bit later. So keep one finger in Matthew 5 and turn with me to Matthew 19 on page 694. Matthew chapter 19, page 694. I'll wait till you're all there and then I'll read from verse 3. Matthew 19, uh, reading from verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So that's the issue they were discussing. Now notice how Jesus responds, because he goes all the way back to Genesis. Verse 4, haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together let man not separate. Now that's what we saw earlier, wasn't it? About the whole purpose of marriage. One new unit at every level of our being united for life. And so here in verse 7, they say, well, okay, why is there a provision 
in Deuteronomy for a certificate of divorce. Why on earth did God allow that? Well, look at the answer that Jesus gives in verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, now here it comes, because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. So you see, Jesus is saying, isn't he, that divorce is a concession. It's not something that was ever part of God's design or plan or purpose. But the concession is given because our hearts are hard. Now can you see that in both cases that we're looking at this morning, desire and divorce, it is the heart the control centre of your personality which is under the spotlight. And you see, just as marriage was given by God to bring joy and fulfilment and harmony through covenant love, so because of the sinful heart, marriage has got equal power to bring hurt and disappointment and sometimes violence and suffering. Now the disciples know that. And so you see, if there is no easy divorce, and if the reality is, verse 9, that anybody who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery, if that's the reality, well we can see, can't we, why the disciples say in verse 10 if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, well, it's better not to marry. And you see, at one level, that is a very understandable reaction, isn't it? But notice that Jesus does not elevate singleness above marriage, because in verse 11, he says that for some people, singleness is given. He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. He's talking about singleness, either because of deformity at birth or because of human intervention, making someone a eunuch, or maybe by choice uh, for the sake of serving Christ and his kingdom. But singleness is not for everybody. And in the beginning, marriage was designed by God for wonderful and honourable kingdom purposes. But you see, whether it's given to us to be single or married, Jesus calls us to live out our circumstances, to live out our personal situation in ways that are distinctively different from the world as those people whose hearts are being transformed by our Lord Jesus. So there we have the basic teaching. Jesus has given us his priorities in the areas of desire and marriage. But what are some of the applications for you and I this morning? What are we go, going to go away and think about and pray about in the coming week? Well, come back to Matthew 5 and let me suggest a couple of things that we can take away with us. Matthew 5, page 682. Now, last Sunday morning, uh, we saw that, the, that Jesus told his disciples that he had not come to abolish the law, 
but rather to fulfil it. And in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that Jesus is doing is he's showing us, now listen to, listen to this, he's showing us what sort of heart he wants to produce in kingdom people and therefore what sort of behaviour he's looking for in our lives. And so one of the ways that the teaching of Jesus fulfils the law is by exposing the sinfulness of our hearts. You see, his standards of life in the kingdom ought to show us just how poor in the spirit we are. Back to the Beatitudes, Matthew 5 verse 3. And that ought to encourage us to run to Christ for his mercy and for his forgiveness. And as we do that, we draw on the strength Jesus gives uh, to change us from the inside out. Now that is what Jesus is concerned about. The point is, you see, that, yeah, by a sheer act of willpower, you can refrain from committing adultery. But you can still have a lustful heart. And you can follow the Old Testament law on divorce to the absolute letter. But your heart can still be utterly sinful in God's eyes if you use the Old Testament law to get rid of a faithful wife or a faithful husband. You see, law can never control how, how we live our lives or what our hearts are actually like. And that is especially true of the hearts of those who are poor in spirit, who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, who are pure in heart and full of mercy. So if we're going to follow the teaching of Jesus on desire and divorce, what Jesus is saying is that we are not to use our senses either of sight or of touch to stimulate or to indulge sinful desires in the heart. Because, you see, all that we are, uh, our bodily appetites and all of the abilities that God has given to us are to be under his sovereign control. And, you see, when that happens, the kind of life that is lived as a result is in such strong contrast to the rest of the world that it is like salt, light, a city on a hill. Absolutely unmissable, which is what we were thinking about a couple of weeks ago. In other words, your attitude to sexual desire and adultery will be so different to the lives of the people around you that people will see the difference Jesus makes. Now think about that. What it means is that the teaching of Jesus on sex is actually part of an evangelistic program. You ever thought of that? Because it is, you see, the distinctive difference of Christians that causes the gospel to penetrate the darkness, the darkness of other people's hearts and the darkness of the culture. Now, you may say, well, that's still a bit up there, Simon. Okay, if that is right, why are so many professing Christians addicted to pornography? 
Because it's a huge problem, isn't it? Uh, not just in the, uh, out there in the culture, it's a huge problem in the Christian community. What on earth can be done about something like that? Uh, does it really matter? Is God concerned about that? Well, it would seem from these verses that God is extremely concerned about it. So the question must be, how do we apply Bible truth to a problem like that? And the answer is, you go back to God's design. We remember that Jesus is relating all of this to Old Testament teaching, and that in the very first chapter of the Bible, God said to men and women, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. Now what that verse is telling us, amongst other things, is that the sex drive is God-given. And it is very strong. And it is primarily so that we have children. But it is also, of course, the source of great delight within the context of a faithful married commitment. But you see, we know, don't we, from elsewhere in the Bible, that the devil is always trying to destroy God's purposes for human beings. And the Bible teaches us again and again that the devil is always going to put fakes or forgeries in front of us which appear on the surface to offer freedom but which actually enslave us and dehumanise us. Now pornography is actually a prime example of that. Because it turns the person looking at it inwards on themselves with the false promise uh, of excitement and fulfilment at absolutely no cost whatsoever in terms of a committed love relationship. And so in our culture today, sexual fantasy is everywhere. Uh, there are countless unreal images that shout, us at, shout at us the whole time that this is the way to pleasure, this is the way to acceptance, this is the way to find yourself, this is the way to the good life, this is the way to sexual fulfilment. But of course, you see, the reality is that there is a maker who has designed human beings to reflect his character. And you see, if we ignore the maker's instructions, we will find that our behaviour doesn't actually fit with reality. Because you see, the maker's instructions require a framework of faithfulness and above all, a heart of self-giving love if we're actually going to enjoy the fulfilment of our God-given sex drive. Now, of course... It can be so much easier not to deal with real human issues of a relationship with another person, and especially in marriage. But rather than retreat into a fantasy world and, and seek to satisfy our desires, either by using our eyes, because that's what Jesus talks about, or by using our hands, because that, well, that's what Jesus talks about. Very easy to do that and to fantasise about what we might enjoy if only we could and in our culture it's a massive pressure because it's only a click away isn't it on the computer screen or 
on the smartphone or a couple of channels away on DSTV. It's everywhere. And uh, if we give way to that, self-gratification takes over. And the mindset, you see, is very insidious, isn't it? Very clever. The mindset that goes with that is, well, it's not so bad. It doesn't do harm to anybody else. Uh, It's private. And it's secret. But, of course, you see, all of the elements of adultery are there apart from the physical act itself. And if we give in to these pressures, we can so easily get trapped into the self-love that destroys true love and poisons relationships and leads to anger and resentment and contempt because human beings are being treated as objects. But can I say this? You don't hear anything else this morning. Please hear this. The really important thing is that it reveals that my heart is not satisfied with God. You see, I might say that I'm a Christian, but if this is something that I'm indulging, then what I'm actually saying is that my way is better than God's way. And of course that's true of all sin in all areas. Persistence in any area of sin is actually saying, do you know what, I'd really rather feed the addictions of my sinful heart, the fantasies of my sinful mind, than actually surrender to the Lordship of Christ. But you see, that isn't the way to live in the Kingdom of Heaven. And Jesus is saying here very, very clearly that we are responsible for our choices. When we go back to God's design, we recognise the destructiveness of sin. And we can either fight against lust or we can encourage it. I don't suppose there's ever been a more highly sexualised culture than ours in the history of the world. Perhaps first century Rome might run it close. But you see, again, this isn't a box for us to tick. Jesus is not sending us away this morning uh, with a little box saying, I don't watch porn, tick. That is not what Jesus is doing. The solution is to have a kingdom heart that loves the Lord Jesus so much for all that he's done for us, for our salvation and all the wonderful blessings that he pours into our lives so that I turn to him with all of my needs and with all of my longings and I ask him to fill me every day with his love. Because you see, it's his love in our hearts that will root out the evil. And that love will produce respect and purity in the heart as I relate to other people. But let me say again, we can choose and we do choose. And in every temptation that you and I face, there's what we might describe as a kind of hinge moment of choice, isn't there? You all know what I'm talking about. 
But you see, we won't control the action unless we deal with the source, unless we deal with the heart. And so as we close, let me take you to Romans chapter 6. Just turn over, if you will, to Romans 6. Because I think what the Apostle Paul says there is so very helpful and so very practical. Romans 6, page 797. Romans chapter 6. See, the question is, what are we going to do about this practically in our own areas of struggle, whether that is uh, lust, adultery, or any other temptation to sin? Uh, Romans 6, verse 12. Now remember, please, here, will you, that the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to people who are saying, yes, I'm a kingdom person. Romans chapter 6 verse 12 Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Pause on that. See, these evil desires, brothers and sisters, are extremely strong and we are likely to give in to them unless there's a stronger force. So look at verse 13. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that every single day I need to come to the Lord Jesus saying, Lord, these are your eyes, they're your eyes that I look through, they belong to you, these are your hands with which I can work and touch, and this is your mind, the mind you've given me with which to think. Every part of my body belongs to you, and I'm to use them for your glory. In fact, It is a living sacrifice for your kingdom. Now you see, God's design applied like that in death begins to change our character. The battles will still happen, don't misunderstand me, the temptations will still come come flooding at you. But you see, the outcome will be assured because your heart is right with God. So, it is a matter of keep on repenting, keep on obeying, not day by day, but hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second, if needs be. And above all, keep drawing from Christ the power and the strength through the work of his Spirit so that we think differently and that our values become kingdom values and not the values of the culture around us. And with regards to divorce, Christians will not want to have hard hearts. We'll want to have softened hearts of repentance and a Christ-like attitude of forgiveness. 
You see, if you bring law-keeping into that situation, we'll get suffocated in our own self-righteousness. So our focus is not law-keeping. Our focus is the love of God which changes everything and conquers every evil. And so you see, there's always hope and potential. And where there are marriage problems for Christians, as there sometimes are, there is always the hope of reconciliation and peace and joy. And I know that divorce is complicated and it's a deeply difficult thing to deal with. But you see, we don't ever, we don't ever have to give up and think that because the culture of the world around us says that that's the only solution, that you and I have to go that way. We don't have to think like that. Because Jesus says, there's a better way in my kingdom. And there are resources at our disposal through Jesus and through everything that he has done for us at the cross so that we can cleanse the past. Uh, Those resources will give us power in the present and will help us to grow in godliness in the future. Let's pray. Well, help us, Lord, we pray, wherever you find us this morning, to hear the word you want to speak to us. Take away the words of a mere man and speak the words of Christ into our hearts. And as we hear his words, may we respond in loving faith and in obedient surrender that we might glorify God by presenting our whole lives as living sacrifices. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.